in chapter 2. All scripture is inspired by God. Uh, it is all of it profitable. It is all of it revealed truth. But there are some parts of God's word that rise above uh, others and that are looked at and memorized and treasured and hidden in the heart by one generation after another. And such are the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. They are uh, among those Mount Everest texts in God's word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments rich in blessing that bring us at the feet of our Savior to have him by the Spirit meditate the truth of God to our needy souls. And Father, we pray that the Spirit would exalt the work of the Son, that he would reveal to us something of the depth and beauty of the work of the Savior, and that you would write your word upon our hearts, all of our hearts. Uh, Father, we do so long and so desire uh, that some would be able, who are not able to add an amen to what we have sung, would next week or tonight uh, be able to speak of uh, your eye diffusing a quickening ray. Father, may all of us be able to say there is no condemnation that we dread. Uh, Lord, bring about that deliverance through your spirit and by your word we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Now from the time she was uh, a little infant, our granddaughter Eleanor has really enjoyed uh, having books read to her. Uh, and it's really sweet as a grandpa when she would, as she got a little bit older, bring a book over and, uh, and say, will you read to me? Well, a couple of weeks ago, she asked another question. She didn't say, will you read to me? She said, will you tell me a story? Now that put the pressure on me because now I had to make up a story. Well, it wasn't just a story. It was then, then will you tell me another and, and, and tell me another and part of what she would enjoy is, I did, I'm sure, what many grandmas and grandpas have done through the years, is you put her in the story. So there's a little princess, of course, and she's a beautiful three-year-old girl named Eleanor. <laughs> now, she enjoys that. I, I, I don't think it's just that it's a, a sign of hubris or pride to say that we like to hear stories that involve us. Your mom or dad says to our, to our kids, says, hey, I want to tell you a story about when your dad was little. Or maybe some old college friend comes around and they say, hey, you remember that time? We, we like those kinds of stories. They're, they're interesting to us. Well, I want to tell you a story, as it were, tonight. I'm going to tell you a story about how you came to be. And like a lot of great stories, it involves great danger and wonderful rescue. It's a story of villains and danger and of a great hero. And it's the story of everyone here who knows the Lord. And again, I pray that it will be the story of all of us gathered here tonight. 
Uh, I've been asked several times through the years by younger pastors or men about to enter ministry, uh, what would be the first book you would preach if you were going to start your ministry or, or if you were going to start your ministry over? And my most common answer is I would preach from Ephesians. And that's because of all that is contained in this book. It's a book about our salvation. It's also a book about the church. And it's a book about our new life in Christ. It's a relational book. It's a book that deals with our hearts as well as with our outward lives. It deals with the church and with the home and with society. But for many of us, above all else, it is a book that deals with God's sovereign, gracious work for sinners. And it is in such a way, and this truth is revealed in such a way, that it not only exalts the glory of God, but it humbles the pride of men. I want tonight, and this is a, a Reformation Day sermon, the Reformation Day, the 506, I think that's right, uh, anniversary of the Reformation uh, is on Tuesday. Uh, and in light of that, I wanted to preach a message that touched on some of these Reformation themes. And I want to work our way through the first 10 verses tonight. I'm going to begin by looking at a great danger, and then we'll consider a wondrous transformation, and then finally, a glorious explanation. So let's begin with a great danger. So I mentioned this is a great rescue story. And so in order for it to be a great rescue story, it must entail some great danger. You know, so if, if, if you were in World War II and your most dangerous story is the time you were working in the PX and you slipped on a banana peel and somebody caught you before you hit the floor, it's not necessarily a great danger. You want to hear about real struggle, the life and death, unimaginable danger. It's the kind of danger that when you first hear of it or read of it, or if you saw it unfolding in a movie, you sit there and you think, how in the world are they going to get out of this? You ever watched a movie and you thought, that's it, they're, it's over, they're done. They're all going to die. And then somehow something happens and brings about a deliverance. Well, listen afresh to the opening words of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, this is a text that is often utilized, one of the proof texts, to deal with the doctrine of total depravity. Why are people the way they are? Why is the world the way that it is? Why do we have the kinds of things that fill our newsfeed week after week? Uh, I'm going to read the text, uh, I, I hate to say it in this way, in, in the more proper way, and that is, uh, you'll note here that there are italicized words uh, in verse 1. Those are words added by the translators. And to me, it kind of, it, 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 they almost ruin the surprise because it lets you off the hook too soon. It should read this way. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, how do you get out of that one? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. How could anyone like that ever be rescued? How could anybody have a testimony in which that is the starting place? Now, we cannot tonight, in light of the, my, I, I did make the decision to, to work through this opening passage, the first uh, nine verses, so I can't take the time to delve into every detail of what is being said here. But I want to make it, I want to deal with it in a way that is sufficient to let you know that this was or this is your life. If I said to some of you, do you know how much danger you're in? You might think to yourself, yeah, I know you think I'm not a Christian. And, and if you're right, and the Bible's true that I'm going to go to hell. Well, I want you to know it's more than that. This is either your past or this is your present. This is your testimony or it's the explanation of why you're the way that you are. You see, you were or you are dead in your sins and trespass. The warning of God from the beginning was that the soul that sins will die. Now, we will see that death is used here not in our more common way, the cessation of all function or uh, total inaction. This is a death of hostility. When we say sometimes of a relationship, uh, a man and his friend were once very close, and we say that relationship's dead. And what you mean by that is that it is full of hostility. There's no warmth. There's nothing there of life and vibrancy that was once there. This is a death of hostility, a lack of life toward God. It is an indifference on the one hand and a rejection on the other of the truth born out of our union with sin. Book of Ephesians talks about union, union with Christ in Christ. Well, here our life is in Christ. Our death was in union with our sin and with what's called our trespasses. That is our violating of God's clear commandments. We had a love for sin. We had a love of transgression. There was a time in our life when or now that sin was sweet. It seemed fun. It seemed liberating to cross the line when God had said you shall not and to cross that line and to live against God's commandments thrilled us. And the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it only leads to death. And so there was death, but there is also this vibrant pursuit spoken of in the text. Speaking of our sins and trespasses, we not only were dead in them, but we walked in them. That's why I say this is using death in a different sense than we use it physically. We walked in. That is, it, it was our life according to the course of this world. A world, the Bible says, that is passing away. A world defined by the passions of itself and of the flesh and of the devil. All those things are present in this passage. 
The way of the world is described in Psalm 1. It's the way of the scoffer, the way of the sinner, the way of the ungodly. Living according to the course of this present age, an age that this book goes on to call this evil age. The days are evil. So there was a time when our minds and our lives, our affections, our talk was not ruled and governed by the word of God, but it was shaped by our culture, by a desire to, to fit in. We went along with the flow, what the people thought, that's what we thought. What Hollywood thought, that's what we thought. We turned on the tube and whatever was being given by way of this is what's right and what's wrong, we bought into it. And so we were in this union with death. We walked according to the course of the world, but also in accordance with this one revealed as the enemy of our souls, called here the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that even now energizes the sons of disobedience. We live, the Bible tells us, to satisfy ourselves, our, our lusts, our passions. And the consequence of all of this is that we are described as being children of wrath. Now, in the Bible, when it is wants to describe somebody according to a certain characteristic, it would say that they are a child of such and such. Sons of Belial is a way to describe wicked men. A child of the devil, sons of thunder, whatever the case might be. Here, children of wrath, those who exemplify wrath, upon whom is wrath? The wrath of a holy God. A God described in the Bible as love, a God who is so benevolent and so kind, who fills our lives with so many good things. How bad must sin be that that God is provoked against us to be angry with us? The wrath of God. Those who live their lives in rebellion against God, who find their power and strength and energy from the prince of the power of the air, those whose lives consist of their lusts and satisfying their lusts, who are slaves to their lusts. These are the recipients of his wrath. And Paul tells us this was all of us. And I, I don't care if you were, you know, and sometimes you look at it and go, well, I was saved when I was three. Well, you were still born this way. Under his wrath, under his just condemnation. But bless God, for many of us gathered here tonight, something happened. So that's a great danger. Now consider a wondrous transformation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And some have said these are the most glorious words in all of the Bible, but God. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, angry over our sin, but loving toward us. In that love, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Now, this deserves weeks of exposition, and I'm not going to give that tonight. But just consider a few things so that we may understand this. Really, all of this was really meant originally just to be preamble to getting to verses 8 and 9. But there's so much here that I felt we needed to spend at least a little more time. But you ask, who, who, who has brought about this transformation? And why did he bring it forth? And how did he bring it about? And what is the result of his action? Who has brought this about? So if this is your testimony, that is, I, this is our testimony is I was, but now I am. Well, see, somebody would say, well, well, what did you do? And you say, well, no, this isn't the story about what I did. It's the story about God. See, my testimony is not the book about, you know, all the home runs I hit or, you know, how I gained wealth or how I became famous. It was how I was the recipient of God's mercy and grace. So the story of our life is not one day I, but one day he. And note that Paul says, not just, he doesn't just tell us, but God. Now, he could do that, and that would give, in essence, all the th- all, really all the theological truth we need. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God changed that. But he says, no, I want you to rem- the God who did this is the God who is rich in mercy. The rich in mercy God. Which God? The rich in mercy God. It's a God who has an overflowing of kindness and mercy in him. So what is mercy? Mercy is a response of kindness to those in our debt or those who are uh, under us, as it were, because they have owed us something. The rich and mercy God. And why did he bring this transformation about? Well, it's because of great love. And you'll note here that Paul's argument is this, that God not only has great love, but that he loved us with great love. And do you understand that, 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 that God could have great love and yet exercise a lesser love toward us? A, a billionaire doesn't have to empty his vault, does he? To say that out of the abundance of his riches, he gave to us. But here is God, as it were. Now, the difference between the rich man and God is that God can never be emptied of his love. But the love with which he loved you was not some lesser love. In fact, the Bible reveals it was the same love that he has for his own son. And the love that he has for his own son is the love with which he loved us. And this is made all the more wonderful as this testimony is being revealed when we consider when he loved us. There are people in your life that you would love a lot more if they changed. Yeah, I got one amen. (laughs) Wouldn't it be so much easier to love them if? And that's really almost always what we want to happen. We don't want to have to change. We want them to change. If only they weren't so exasperating. If only they were not so this or so that, they would be far easier to love. What could we have done to be easier for God to love? Sin a little less? Be a little less gross, a little less idolatrous, a little less blasphemous, a little less unloving or whatever we were. 
But it was when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, while we were still in union with our sin, though we were, in the language of the text, dead. He did this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because out of the heart of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And he gives that first opening strand of the of the great song by grace you have been saved and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ so that our song as we sang tonight tis mercy all so a lot of good theology in hymns your your hymns ought to have rich theology in them if you uh, are or wherever church you go to, make sure that you're able to admonish each other with the, with the language of hymnody. Tis mercy all, not what our hands have done, we sing in another hymn. Not because we were lovely or lovable or commendable while we were enemies, and our brother Kyle read the passage there in Romans chapter 5, while we were enemies, God demonstrated his love for us. And how did he bring about this transformation? Well, by uniting us to his son. He made us alive together with Christ. He did it by grace and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this harkens back to some of the truths revealed at the beginning of the letter that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in our union with Christ, just as he loved us in him before the foundation of the world, that who and what Christ is becomes who and what we are, so that God placed us in union with his son, a union wrought in the eternal counsels of the Godhead before the world began. So that we are who we are now when we possess what we possess, not by earning it. Again, remember, it is all by grace, all by mercy. But we are what we are and we have what we are because of union with Christ. If you were utterly destitute, I mentioned a billionaire earlier. Let's say now you marry a billionaire. What are you now? You're a billionaire. Martin Luther told the story about a king who married a, a prostitute. And, and so that when the, the in marriage and, and in the wedding, you say something like, all that I am and all that I are, I give to you. Now, what did she have to offer to the king? My disgrace I offer to you. My past jail sentence I offer to you. The destruction of my name I offer to you. But the king then says, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And her name is no longer a name whispered. It's a name that shouted because she is now queen. And her home is his palace and all of his riches are hers. All that he has and all that he is, he gives. That's what happens to us in union with Christ. All the blessings are in him. And if we are in him, then we have all the blessings. That makes sense. We receive the glory of those things. We died with him. We're buried with him. The scriptures teaches, teach us. We were raised in union with him, exalted with him. Even now, 
So when do we get seated in the heavenly places in Christ? It's not when you die. It's now, even now, we sit with him in the heavenly places. Quite a, quite a statement from a man sitting in a prison. Where are you, Paul? What do you mean, geographically or spiritually? Geographically, I'm in a prison. Spiritually, I'm seated with Christ. For my life is not hidden in my circumstances. It's not hidden in my health or in my wealth. It's not hidden in favorable providence or governmental reprieve or anything other than the finished work of Christ. Now, under what end is all of this revealed? What's the Lord going to do with all this? Now, from our vantage point, all this was a lot of joy and whatnot. But the Lord, as it were, I'm t I was tempted to say has some skin in the game. I want to be very careful. I don't ever want to speak irreverently about any of this. But I want us to think through what's being said. It says that so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. I want to say this very reverently, but I want you to understand. I want to say it in a way that may be striking to you. God is going to receive glory by showing us off. So we use the term sometimes a trophy of grace. Now, what do you do with your trophies? You just hide them in closets, right? Well, you say, well, if you're humble, you do. No, but you, 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 you have a trophy, you, you, you put it on a, on a mantelpiece. A few days from now, one team or another is going to win the World Series. They're going to get rings at the end of that. And you know what? If I had that ring, I'd probably look for an opportunity to show it. Because my glory would be bound up with it. I was thinking of that text in, in 2 Kings chapter 8. Remember this guy Gehazi, he is the servant of Elisha. And the king is saying to Gehazi, tell me some Elisha stories. Well, one day he did this and one day he did that. And, and unlike the, the fake miracle workers of our day, he's able at one point, well, let me read it, let me read it to you. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now, it happened as he was telling the king of how he restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. They're right there. So he's telling him the story. Elisha raised somebody from the dead. Now, when somebody sometimes, again, you get sometimes uh, Oral Roberts. I raised somebody from the dead. Uh, where are they, Oral? Uh, well, they weren't really dead. But you know, he's able to say, oh, it's just, he's right there. Tell us a story of your grace, God. Tell us a story of your mercy. Tell us a story of your patience. Tell us a story of your long suffering. Let me show you somebody here. Let me bring them over here. To the angelic hosts. 
So there's a discussion of the love of God or the mercy of God or the greatness of his forgiveness. They can and we will be used as a story. The story of your life will be to the wonderment of the principalities and powers and the powers of the age to come, how gracious and merciful and how powerful the Lord is. To the angelic host in heaven and to the demons of hell at the end of the age, when the nations are gathered before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be those at his right hand who used to be dead in sins and trespass who used to walk in accordance with the word world, who were once energized by the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience. And where are they now? The trophies of his grace, wonders of his mercy and long suffering. And they will make clear the power of his grace, the wonders of his love, the efficacy of the cross, the power of his intercession. This one was barely hanging on. And they persevered. The world, the flesh, and the devil came against this church. And I interceded. And they thrived. This one here felt the pressure of his sin and his lust and felt that he would never be able to survive. And by the power of the Spirit, they did. You see, they're going to look at people like us. And they will know something of the depth of our past depravity and of our struggles in this life. And he will show us off so that in our lives he will receive glory due to the wonders of his love. See whom I have saved. Paul says of himself, he said, he saved me in order that he might demonstrate to others his power and his grace. We prayed for Muslims tonight. And the Lord's not really going to do much with that, is he? If the Lord should have 10,000 or 10 million or 100 million of the followers of Allah proclaiming the name of Jesus, will it not show forth his power? See the mercy I have showered upon them. See how the rage of the enemy and the power of the world and strength of remaining sin was no match for my love and grace. All right, now I want to give a glorious explanation. So how did all this happen? Well, one day you see you heard a sermon. See, sometimes I tell the story this way. Well, you know, I was walking in my neighborhood and somebody invited me to a Bible study. I heard George McDermott preach. That's the explanation. No, it's not. That's, that's true. I sure didn't explain much because George McDermott preached to a lot of people that nothing happened in. The explanation is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, many of you here are aware of what we call the five solas of the Reformation, sola Latin word for only, and I'm not going to give the Latin here tonight, not because I, I couldn't, but because give the English. So sola alone, so scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to God alone be the glory. Those are the five solas, and they're all here in this text. 
You want to preach about grace alone? Where are you going to preach? Ephesians 2, right? You want to preach about faith alone? You're going to go to text. You want to preach how all the glory goes to God? You're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. You want to say all of it's due to Christ? It's going to be, it's going to be this text. And where do you find it? Well, you find it in the scriptures alone. All five of the solas are in this text. It's a text that explains how salvation came to us. Now, but this text is saying that, I talked about this deliverance, you, you were dead and all of this, and then you got transferred into the heavenly places. This is describing what the Bible calls salvation. That's a word we throw around a lot. We got saved. We were lost and now we're found. We got, we got saved. What does it mean to be saved? Saved means to go from a place, it means to be rescued, to go from a place of danger to a place of safety. That's what it means. We go from being children of wrath to being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's danger to safety, isn't it? I mean, how could you have a greater, you know, every once in a while, you know, if you see somebody get pulled out of a building or something like that, that's on fire. And, and what, what if they, they got them out and they just dropped them at the door of that burning house? You'd say, well, they might still die. You had to get them away from there. Get them to a place where there's no smoke and no flames. What, what greater transfer could there be from a child of death and wrath to a living child of Christ in the heavenly places? We go from wrath to being beloved children accepted in the beloved. From death to life, from blindness to sight, from slavery to freedom. And how did that happen? Uh, here's our phrase, right, folks? It's what we all need to remember. It's by grace. You're saved by grace. Unless we misunderstand it, it's not of works. And Paul utilizes here a particular grammatical formulation that we need to understand. It's very vital. The term, when he says, by grace, you are, are you saved, you are saved. Are ye saved? Translated variously. It's what's called the perfect tense. And so what's well, a big deal about the perfect tense? Well, here it really is a big deal. The perfect tense describes something in the Greek grammar, describes something that has happened in the past that remains true for all time. It cannot and it will not be altered or changed. And what that means is this. Not only were you saved by grace, that you will be saved by grace. You were, you are, and you will be saved by grace. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not we might have peace with God as long as we're good enough and faithful enough and all of the rest. As long as we do enough to make up for what is lacking in Christ. That's not what the Bible teach, teaches us. There is therefore now no condemnation. Well, somebody then says, well... What about now? Yeah, you, you said that a minute ago, but that was before I did this. No, no, it's also now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, you had to have been saved by grace. The only way you could possibly have been saved, it had to be great. I don't know how anybody ever comes up with a salvation by works. A dead person in and of themselves can't bring about a change of his condition. He doesn't will himself to life. 
We were dead. We were lost. We were undone, captured, captive to the devil. Nothing we could do. No way to buy or earn or work our way out. We had sin. We were unable to save ourselves or earn our salvation past, present, or future. But we have been saved. But something happened. I'm no longer that person that I was. It's not of myself. Therefore, I cannot boast in it. It's the gift of God. More on that in a moment. But the point I I, I want you all to know and to see afresh here and to remember is that your salvation is gracious from the first to the last. And I I know what many of us want. We want less grace in our lives the more we go on. What do you mean by that? I want to be more lovely. I want to be more savable. I want God to take less effort to get me to heaven as I get on. I I, I want to begin to earn my way. That's what I'm saying. I want to begin to add a little bit. Listen, Paul says in the strongest possible language in the book of Galatians, you do not finish in the flesh what was begun by the spirit. And though our salvation does produce works, verse 10 is right here. There's no contradiction between these two statements that you're saved by grace and unto the end that you will walk in this newness of life. You are not saved by works, but if you are saved, you will show it in large part by your works. Work flowing from salvation is very different from work producing salvation. You are saved by grace. You are kept by grace. When you enter a glory, you will see that you are there by grace, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you wanted to please God, how much you did please God. You will see in glory the holiness of God in full display. And you will perhaps be able to see something of your own sin, not in a way that produces misery, but in a way that will produce wonder, joy, and amazement. And you will know that it was not the labor of your hands that satisfied the demands of the law. Jesus has done that and then given you the reward of his own action and labor and suffering. You are saved by grace and you are kept by grace. God does not say to you at any point, now earn this. I've started it. Now you finish it. By the spirit it is begun, but by your flesh it shall be perfected. It's easier sometimes to remember that at the beginning of our journey. But somewhere along the way, the reveling in grace is overshadowed by the sting of our failure and our inconsistency. It's possible that a group of believers would testify more often when they gather together of their failures and their sins and in the mercy shown to them. And if we do well in some area, we grow proud and then despise another who fails to measure up. They don't read as much as we do. They're not as committed to the church as we are. They don't witness enough or serve enough or do enough. They don't parent as well or work as hard. And so we forget that we are where we are by grace. And so are they.
Now this salvation wrought by Christ and offered graciously is, as it were, put into our hands by faith. And that is why some here enjoy this and others here do not. For we are saved by grace through faith. You see, Christ is offered, but for some he is not received. But as many as do receive him, the Bible says to them, God gives the right to become children of God. How do I receive the benefits of the person and work of Jesus? This isn't hard. You know, I, I mentioned before several times, I, I have begun to enjoy cooking. There's nothing more frustrating than getting online. Some of you, a lot of you have seen this, I know. You go online and you, you want to learn, how do I cook that chili? Well, they begin like with, I was conceived in the womb. And they tell, the, and you're like, just tell me. I don't need to hear about when you were in high school and you had the best chili. Now, that's not my recipe, you know. Just tell me. That's all I want to know. How do you receive the benefits of Christ? You believe on him. Look to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You believe. And there's a beautiful picture in John's gospel, John chapter 3. And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he tells the story of what happened. You read about it in the book of Numbers when the people had sinned and there is a plague of of snakes, horrible, that come in and begin to bite people and they swell up and they die. And there is told, Moses is told to do this unusual thing to make a, a, a serpent out of bronze and put it on a standard and raise it up and tell the people, just look at it and you'll live. Let's just look at it. You just got to look at it. And some people, you just... What do they, they despise the simplicity of it? I quoted a moment ago, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. It's taken from the prophet Isaiah. And it was a text that was preached on the day that a teenage Charles Spurgeon was converted. And Spurgeon tells the story. Let me, let me, let me read you uh, Spurgeon's story. I won't do the accent or anything. But he's now quoting. So what happened is, many of you know the story. I've actually been to this building. And I, I, I have sat over where I believe that, that he sat. And actually, if you go to that church now, it wasn't Methodist church. It's now a little Reformed Baptist church. And they have that text written behind the pulpit, look unto me and, and be saved. And so what happened is, it was in January and, and he was on his way to another church. There was a, a snowstorm and he found his way into this little Methodist chapel. And there were about six people there. And it was snowing so badly the preacher couldn't get there. And so a, a man stood up and Spurgeon reckons he might have been a tailor. He, he doesn't know. He says he was rather inarticulate but very passionate. And this was his text, look unto me and be saved. So Spurgeon now quoting the, the man. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. 
I, he said in his broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by through Jesus. Jesus says, look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look to me. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look to me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look to me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me, I'm dead and buried. Look to me, I rise again. Look to me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. That's what you need to do. Now, all again, we're told all of this, this whole complex there's this argument, well, is, is it the gift of God? Is that faith? Is it grace? It's all God's gift. It's none of it's of works. Why did we go from having no faith in Jesus to one day having faith in Jesus? It's God's grace and God's mercy. The answer is not in myself, it's him. But even if this salva salvation produces more work or, or more fruit in one life than another. It's all for the glory of God and not our own exaltation. Paul says that no one should boast. Again, this week marks the beginning of the Reformation, 506 years ago, Martin Luther, church in Wittenberg, nailing the 95 theses on the door there. And that began in his own life, that the, the complex that led to that began in his understanding of Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation, everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And he saw that that righteousness revealed was not his own righteousness, but it was the righteousness of God in Christ granted by faith. The just, he said, shall live by faith. And this is for many of us, this is our story. I wanted to tell you your story tonight. Our danger and our deliverance. But how did it become ours? How did the old, old story of Jesus and his love become precious to us? Because faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And by this means, we knew that God was gracious and believed that God was gracious and embraced his universal offer to all sinners that there is life and deliverance to be had. I saw a video the other day that really struck me. I'm not sure how I was, I was directed to it. You, you get online and you wind up, you look at one thing and eventually you wind up getting, if you like that, you'll like this. So I must have watched a police video or something at one Time. Well, this was a video it consisted of two parts. It was a video in which it, there was a separation of the two events by 15 minutes. It was a video of the body cam of a police officer. And in the first part of the video, he pulled over a young man and a young woman for reckless driving. And they were apologetic. The girl said, this is all, we, we, it was a first date and he was trying to impress me. He says, well, you were really driving recklessly, I need to cite you, you know, it was really dangerous, you almost hit me, all of this. But he let him go, they, they thanked him, thank you officer, he let him go. Cut to 15 minutes later and he's driving down the street 
and he sees their car demolished under the wheels of a truck. And he runs out. And he said, what happened? And the officer says, they're gone. He said, I warned them. I warned them. I told them. I just told them. I just told them. Fifteen minutes ago, I told them. They wouldn't listen. God gave a warning. And that warning was ignored. And that night, it cost them their lives. For some, it may cost you your soul. And I don't know when. I, I hope. It's not 15 minutes from now. But one day the last warning will be given. The last promise offered. Someday some preacher will give, as it were, the last gospel invitation. And a sinner will come to faith in Christ. And the father will say to the son, go. And he will come in power and glory. May it be that your story will not be the story of just condemnation, but of great grace that came to you in your need. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time together in your word to consider the truth of your gracious work in our lives. Father, we do pray that that work done in us will be multiplied to every needy soul here, every young man, every young woman, every older person who is without Christ. Father, we have prayed and we have labored. May you bring the increase. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.